We want to uh, give lots of thanks to Priscilla, who is Daniel's fiance, and uh, make sure you tell her thank you, thank you, thank you. And tell us about your big dates coming up day, which is a date. March 13th. March 13th. Seven weeks. Is it seven weeks from today? I think it is. I think it's exactly seven weeks from today. Less than two months. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You can know the week of. Just, just, count, just get the days right the week of. <laughs> it's good. So, yeah, we're excited. Very good. We're excited for you. Very good. And we also need to give thanks to um, um, Marilyn Myers, Bob's good wife. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, there's still plenty over there, guys. So eat up. And remember the rules. You can get up, you can get down anytime you want, and uh, make yourself at home. And uh, you can interrupt anytime you want, and you can use the restroom anytime you want. Um, this morning, um, we are going to do our best to get to small groups. Uh, we might not be able to do it. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we have we have a ton to go over, and, our, and there's lots of really. Um, this is one of my favorite favorite build sessions to do on deacons, and um, I there's some important things in there. Uh, the elders have a position paper that came out of this that um, helps explain um, verse 11. I think it is on, on the women there mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.11. And so we want to make sure that we cover that. Is it raining again? No, it's just the cars on the street. I'm going to be close to it. We can do that. Let the snow come in. So we'll, we'll get through as much as we can and go as fast as we can and make sure we take a break as well. Uh, I just want to give you a brief reminder about Shepherd's Conference. Again, March 3rd through the 5th. Uh, it's a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. If you can make it, we would love for you to make it. Uh, what you need to do, if you haven't already, is you need to go online and you need to register. Um, just look up shepherdsconference.org and you'll be able to find it. And um, you register yourself. And then you need to send an email to Cass or call her right away to let her know that you've registered. And then what she'll do is she'll, um, when we get closer, she'll work out the carpool travel stuff, make sure that we're all... Um, you know, able to, to not have to drive separately, but we can carpool as much as we can. Um, and if you're flying out, she'll make sure that you uh, have somebody who, she'll help us coordinate so we get to pick you up along the way when, when you get there and, and all of that stuff. And if you have any financial challenges on that, I would really love for you to talk to me about that or you can talk to Tom as well. Because um, we, we, we don't want that to be a, uh, an obstacle for you, if, if at all possible. Um, so please talk to us about that, okay? And let's review the disciplines, okay? So if you need to turn your notebook over, I want you to do that. Turn it over to the back side and take a peek at those again. And again, I, I, I hope that your wife would be able to wake you up or your roommate would be able to kick you in the middle of the night and you'd be able to just say, discipline one in the heart, the home, or whatever. Um, these things need to just come out of you um, because they're central to what it means to, I think, be a Christian and to be a man in the church. Um, this is, in many ways, biblical manhood. There's a lot of emphasis these days on trying to recover you know, masculinity and all that in the church. And there's a lot of stuff and time spent on you know, um, tough guy kinds of things to do, which is great. I'm all up for that. Do it. But who cares if you do all that kind of thing 
and you don't shepherd your heart, and you don't shepherd your family, and you step into people's lives with a, your own life being a mess. You may be a macho man, and you just ruined a bunch of stuff. So this is biblical manhood. Um, you're, you need to be number one, a man who's shepherding your heart, where you're coming to God's word in order to meet with God. There needs to be some kind of expression of prayer in your time as you read that says, God, I am here this morning with this book open because you have revealed yourself here and I want to know you. There needs to be something like that that you express at the heart level for God. I want to know you. Reveal yourself to me. There's no other place that you can go to see God, to meet him, to have him be revealed to you that is more clearly than in this book. And as a man of God who's been changed by God, you want that. You want that. And if you do that and become that kind of a man, you will step into the lives of other people and there will be a fullness of God in your heart and you will have something to offer. You will have something to say to your roommates, to your, your, your family, and then you can begin to care for them. Discipline number two, the home. You, you bring a gospel aroma, a, a biblical flavor to your home so that when people are, walk into that home, they sense, they know, this, this guy is different. There's, a, there's an influence here that I've not seen in too many places. This is, this is a, I want to be here. I like to be in this house. I like to be in this house when I'm righteous and when I obey because of this kind of man. And you know what? When I sin, I don't want to flee from this house. I want to, I want to be in this house. This is the place to be. When I sin and when I'm righteous, I can be restored in this house because there's a man of the gospel here, a man who loves the word, a man who knows that there's a God of grace and kindness and patience and, yes, a God of justice. But I want to be under this man's care. Um, that then, if you are that kind of a man with those two kinds of things going on in your life, then you should run as fast and as far as you can in the body of Christ to care for people. You should. Because people will look at your life and they will see from the inside out that, and from the inside of your house out into the church that you're a man of integrity. You are not one thing in front of the people and then you've got something else weird going on at home. But you are you're a shepherd at home, and you are shepherding people and caring for people in the body. That's what the church needs to accomplish the mission that Jesus Christ gave it, is men like that. That's biblical manhood, right? That's what it means to be a man of God. That's what we're calling ourselves to. That's what we want to rally around as men in this church. We want to unify around these things. And then discipline for them is what we're talking about last time we're together and, and today, the, the qualifications that we find in Scripture. We want these lives to match up to those qualifications. And in particular, in build, we, we put the deacon qualifications in front of you. Although I would exhort all of you to prayerfully set before you elder qualifications and you pray earnestly, God, make me this kind of man, qualified for leadership in a local church to be able to shepherd people. That may not mean that you'll be a preacher teacher. It may not mean that you'll have a position that looks like other elders that you've seen before. But it, it, the church needs men who can shepherd people and who are qualified. And if you are focusing on your heart, and you are focusing on your home, 
and you're stepping into the lives of people and those first three disciplines are down, I'll tell you something, guys. It's just a matter of time before somebody in the church recognizes, hey, this guy's the elder qualified. Because the qualifications themselves in the list in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 are not outside the bounds of disciplines 1, 2, or 3. They're actually inside those three disciplines. What kind of a man is he before God with his heart? What's his character like? What's he like in his home? Does he know how to manage his own household well? And what's he like with people? Is he a fighter? Does he know how to de defend the faith among different kinds of people? What's he like with them? Um, discipline five for us is just kind of a catch-all category where if we ever want to address something biblical, theological, or practical in ministry, we, we can do that. And discipline six is, of course, um, our particular biblical vision and gospel purpose for this church. You could take disciplines one to five and you could uproot them from here and hopefully put them in any church anywhere and they would, it would make sense. Um, however, we're recognizing that we're in this church and this church has a specific <coughs> biblical vision that we're after with a gospel purpose. And so we want you to be rallied around this biblical vision and this gospel purpose here um, and so we want to keep that in front of us, and we'll focus on that later this semester. So, any questions or comments on the disciplines as we just try to review them each time? Anything, guys? Tom, anything you want to add? Okay. All right, take a look at your uh, quote that I <coughs> got for you today. And this is where I also get to do a shameless plug for a great book. Um, the quote is from... Uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul David Tripp is the author. How many of you have read this book? A few of you? Okay. All of you need to read this book. This book, um, if there are any on the bookshelf tomorrow or in the book rack tomorrow, I want to see you all fighting for it in the back. <laughs> Beat each other up in Christ to get it. Okay? <laughs> this is a wonderful book. Um, people in need of change helping people in need of change. That's the body of Christ. Um, this is a great book. The elders read through it together, spent quite a bit of time on it, I think last year. And um, you, 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 this, is a, this is a great book. To give you an example, it, um, I had um, Smed this week ask me a question that I, I, tr I try to look through and tell maybe you'll be able to remember if that question's in here or not. And if the question itself didn't come from the book, the idea in asking the question came from the book. Um, I was going through um, a challenge that I had, and something going on, and Smed was just helping me think through it, and he asked me this question, what are you not getting that you think you should get? It's in here. And I was like, I'm so glad that we read that book together as elders, because now this guy is applying it to my life. And it helps, that a question like that helps you get to the bottom of finding out what's going on in your heart. Because there may be righteousness that's going on that's causing you to struggle with why you're not getting what you think you should get. It also may be very simple. <laughs> what's going on in your actions that you're giving are, are, are uh, displaying or are sinful because you're not getting what you should think you should get. <coughs> so anyway, that's just a, this book is a, is a, is a great book. It, it, this is a book that would help you uh, with roommates, Getting off roommates. This is your roommate book. Um, this book is your marriage book. Okay. This book is your small group book. 
this book is, a, is your companion to have alongside the scriptures so that you know that I'm a person who's in need of change, and I'm just here to try to help other people who are in need of change. Um, that's the body of Christ. You're an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, and this quote is from it. Let's take a look at it. For most counselees, the person being counseled, right, their starting point is their own experience. That's basically where we all are. Reflexively, we're just going to start from what, we, what our experience was, whatever it is that happened to us, or is happening to us, or that we caused to happen to us. They tend to view all of life through the lens of their own personal history, assumptions, and desires. The interpretation they've made of their lives thus far will also then color all future interpretations. It will even color the way they understand Scripture. People who interpret life through the lens of their own experience will do the same with God's Word. Personal experience, not Scripture, controls their view of the world. And such a person needs someone whose vantage point is different. Someone who starts with Scripture and moves toward life. Scripture must become the basis for interpreting life and not vice versa. Um, it, and, and maybe you can identify with those words and, and you can feel that, that sometimes you get so caught up in the events and the situation and the circumstances that you're, that's all you can see through. You just feel like you're at the bottom of the pool of your situation and your circumstances. It doesn't matter which way you look up or down around you. You're looking through the, the flood of that. <coughs> and you need somebody who's standing up on the pool deck who can shout down to it. I've got a different perspective. And it's this perspective from the Word of God, okay? And so what we do is we need each other to step into one another's lives to accomplish that because we just get colored by what we've been in. And one of the things that you need to be able to do with yourself, with your own heart, and, and the reason I even gave you this quote is because I think it goes right along with Discipline 1. One of the things that you're trying to do with your own heart every day is when you come before God's Word, it, you're, you, you enable yourself to make this statement, God, help me as I'm meeting with you in your Word <coughs> to see my life through the lens of this. Okay? So you give yourself a, a chance to kind of clear the, clear the windshield and say, I know what I've, I've been colored the last 24 hours by what happened to me and what I did and what I walked through and what I thought and what I didn't think. And now I want to have a fresh start today with this where I want this to be my windshield through which I look at everything else. So you need to learn to shepherd your heart more and more with that kind of thinking in mind. And you need to be surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who would love to do that for you also and help you to see clearly. So with that in mind, we're going to draw near to God's Word and God Himself and perhaps be able to look at our lives with a fresh perspective this morning. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help, okay? Father, thank you so much for your word that you preserved and protected for us. God, this book is so, so unique. There is no other book that has um, the kind of historical evidences um, that this one has. Copies and manuscripts and portions of books that number into the tens of thousands for the New Testament that give lots of evidence that you, God, were um, 
superintending the preservation of this book, these words. And that's not a surprise to us if indeed this is revelation from you, that you would protect what reveals you, that you would preserve it. And God, I pray that as we draw near to your word this morning, that you would help us to clean the windshield, so to speak, and um, that, Lord, you would help us to view our own lives through the lens of Scripture, that we would be able to um, have a fresh perspective, your perspective, the Spirit's perspective. So draw near to us, God, as we draw near to you, please, and uh, make it evident that you met with us and that we were in your presence as we all studied your word. You're a great, and we love you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Take out your worksheet that goes along with um, our study this morning, Discipline 4, the qualifications. You got two pages there, the white sheets. And uh, we'll jump in. What I'm going to do this morning is um, we're going to break down our study into what one, two, three, four sections. First, we're going to talk about number one, the greater context in which deacons sit, and that's primarily just a review from last time, um, and and maybe trying to pull out a few other things that you didn't, um, maybe that we didn't talk about last time, and then secondly, we're just going to talk about the deacon qualifications themselves. Um, the importance of tested and approved character, and then we'll start to just kind of walk through all of the, the qualifications. Dignity on page two, no, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain, holding to the mystery of the faith, the clear of conscience, husbands of one wife, good managers of their children, and own households. And then number three, we're going to look at deacons' wives, because there's a question there in regards to who is that, who are these women, in verse 11, and what I did is I just copy and pasted into your notes um, the position paper that the elders came up years ago, came up with years ago, when we were um, seeking to implement um, deacons into the church, and we're going to walk through that. I want you all to understand that. We'll look at the qualifications for those wives of deacons there, and then lastly, uh, number four on, on, on page five, we'll look at deacons, the blessed results of faithfulness in verse 13. Um, so let's start and remind ourselves back on number one, the greater context in which deacons sit. The, the important thing for us to remember <clears throat> is the big picture, and that is the body of Christ is committed to advancing the gospel mission of the church, right? That's the main thing we are. We are, uh, if you will, a ship, a battleship, that was made by God to sail, to steam, to charge into battle in the world. We were not meant to be docked at port, um, at a resort, at a, at a vacation destination. We're supposed to be steaming through the battle going forward. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, the body of Christ is committed to advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. Now, if we wanted to take a look then at the people in the church... We could look at them three different ways. We could talk about them all as one in, in terms of all disciples. All disciples of Jesus Christ are to be committed to that advancement of the gospel mission through the local church, right? And in particular, 
his or her local church. There's not one person that we would say, oh, you're a disciple, oh, but you're not committed to the gospel mission of the, through the local church. That's okay. Nobody would ever say that, right? All disciples are to be. Now, if we talk about another section of the local church, elders. Elders, we found last time from looking at um, Acts 6, they, they were personally committed to the advancement of the gospel mission in Jerusalem. They were being obedient to Acts 1.8. They were. They were taking the gospel deep into the heart of Jerusalem. Remember what the, Jesus told his disciples? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's what they were doing. They were being faithful to the gospel mission. And it was costing them dearly, right? Personally, it was. But not only are they to personally be committed to this, the elders, but they are to make sure that they lead and oversee the body's advancement of the gospel mission. Okay? That's the charge of, of elders in a local church. Now, we also then introduced ourselves to the idea of deacons from Acts 6 last time, talking about them in terms of prototype deacons, because it's not actually, they're not actually called deacons in Acts 6, but it's, I think there's really good evidence uh, to assume that that's where the whole idea progressed out of uh, for deacons. We found that they, too, were a servant layer of leadership that were appointed by the elders, and that servant layer of leadership went and took care of a need within the body, all so that elders would not be distracted from their oversight and, and pursuit of the gospel mission for the church. It's not like the elders were thinking, <clears throat> you know, Let's give some guys over here who are really good bakers and waiters while we go do the gospel mission. We do the gospel mission, but they serve bread. Yeah, they serve bread, but what did we find out about Philip and Stephen in particular, two out of the seven men? Stephen gave his life proclaiming the gospel, defending the gospel. And Philip became known as Philip the Evangelist. And so... The elders were thinking, the prototype elders, Apostle Peter in that early church, they were thinking, we need men who are committed to the gospel to go feed widows in the church so that in every corner of the church, there's always this aroma of gospel mission-minded men serving. I don't care if it's bread. I don't care if it's setting up chairs. It doesn't matter what it is. We need gospel-minded mission men doing it. Now, by the way, Flip over to uh, Philippians 1 for just a moment. By the time Paul wrote um, the letter to the Philippians, look at Philippians 1, 1. <clears throat> just let you see, by this time, there had been something that had progressed in the thinking in the mind of the apostles in regards to the local church. Paul and Timothy, who are they? Slaves of Jesus Christ. That's the word doulos, or slaves. We don't really know what to do with that in English. So we call it servants sometimes. Some translations will say servant. Uh, it's, it's slave. It's one who has no right over his own life. NAS says bondservant. That's closer. We're just afraid to put slave. That's what we are. That's what Paul and Timothy viewed themselves as. Slaves of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Okay? He's thinking all the Christians in the church, including overseers and deacons. 
So you see, already by the time you get to Philippi, there's this idea of there are saints in the church, and among those saints are some elders and deacons. Now, if all disciples are committed to the gospel mission of the church, um, would you commit to a local church in which the saints did not view that it was their responsibility? I mean, what if you went to a church and there were no saints committed to the gospel mission? Would that trouble you? Would you go to that church? No, of course not. Would you go to a church if there were no elders <clears throat> committed to? No. Would you go to a church? Have you gone to a church in which there are no deacons? Why is that one negotiable? That's just my question. Why do we negotiate away deacons? I know why. It's because we've made such a mess and a confusion of what deacons are. We're just like, I don't even understand what they are. So I guess we can, you know what, the church is doing fine without them. So let's do, I can, I can be here in a place where there are saints committed to the gospel. I can be here where there are elders committed to the gospel. There are no deacons anywhere, but I'm okay with that. And what I want us to conclude from this is that the word of God does not let us do that anymore. Okay? We have to figure out what deacons are, like we have to figure out what elders are, like we have to figure out what it means to be a saint in Jesus Christ in the local church. You understand? This is not a side issue that, you know, let us talk about a little something on the side that we think is important, uh, that's really not a central thing. No, this is central to the life of the local church, deacons. So, with that in mind, and I think this is why you see a, a qualification list given. And I think that shows you how important it was to the Apostle Paul in the early church. This is so important. God is going to inspire and inscripturate and lock in and preserve and protect and maintain a qualification list for deacons. And that is what we get to look at. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses... Actually, what I want to do is I want to read 1, verse 1 down to 13, so you see the whole thing. Paul does not start with deacons in 1 Timothy 3. He starts with elders. Overseers. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. 
deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I'll tease you for just a moment. I wonder who Paul's thinking of when he says, deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's talk about um, what is buried right in the middle of the qualifications between verses 8 to 13. Um, buried right in the middle in verse 10 is this statement, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Um, Paul is giving here a spiritual character grid. And what we would be able to conclude after looking at Acts 6 is that this is not a new idea. A spiritual character grid through which you would look to evaluate a man. Because in Acts 6, it appears that there was something similar to that in the minds of Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. Pick among you seven men full of the Holy Spirit and qualifications given of some sort. They don't look exactly like this, but it's not a new idea. Uh, it's, it's probably a progressed idea, a developed idea. But verse 10 here, I think, shows us how the early church is thinking and conviction of the spiritual character evaluation of these servants, how their thinking grew, how it was refined, how it developed, and how it was progressed. Now, I've got like um, the, the statement in verse 10, uh, and you've got a, a, a tested character sandwich, so, so to speak. Paul loves to do these sandwich things where he'll make a statement like, these men must also first be tested. And if you look at the end of the verse, if they are beyond reproach, kind of similar ideas, and then there's this idea in the middle, then let them serve as deacons. And what I want to do is I want to evaluate and take a look at that tested character sandwich that's there, okay? Let's talk first about these men must also first be tested. That word, that verb idea of being tested means to test um, like you test metal in order to show its genuineness. You've got some metal. You want to prove that it's the good stuff. And so what do you do? You melt it. You refine it with fire. And you then go, yep. That's what I thought. It is the genuine real deal. This is not a testing for the purpose of failing it. Okay? This is a testing to show the genuineness of what it is. It's a positive testing. Is it uncomfortable to be refined by fire? Yes. But in God's mind, why is he doing it? To make you fail. No. To show that what he made you is the real deal. You've got to get some impurities off of there. You've got to skin those off the top. In fact, the beautiful picture back in the day was the, the melter would bring the, the, the metal to a boil to great heat and continue with some type of tool to scrape the dross off the top of it. And he would keep doing that until he could look down into it and see his own reflection. And so the idea is that God's not going to stop until he sees his own reflection in you. But he's testing you to show what he actually made you to be, not to fail you. Okay? 
So that's the idea there. And then having passed the approval of the testing, these men, let them serve as deacons. Uh, hold on to that for a second. Now jump down to if they are beyond reproach. What does that beyond reproach mean? It means this, not arraigned. You cannot be arraigned in a court of law as guilty. A charge cannot come against you in a court of law. Okay? You are unblameable. Unblameable. So let them be tested. Let them be refined. Let them be shown to be exactly what they are. And then that, another way to say this is that we can find no blame in him. There's nothing in his life that we can blame him with. That doesn't mean he's Jesus Christ. Okay? Right? But it means that he has the kind of life that consistently is marked by um, being above blame. And then in the middle of it, serve. Now let them serve. Com command. They will serve as deacons. Okay, so the leadership of the Ephesian church, which is represented by Timothy here, the leadership of the Ephesian church, because that's who Paul's writing to at 1 Timothy. Um, that's where Timothy is when he wrote to Timothy. They were to have, those lead, that leadership was to have some kind of an observation relationship with these men. Test them. Watch it. See if there's anything blamable in their lives. No? From your observations? Let them serve as deacons. Okay? They would have some type of an observation relationship with these men that would allow them, over time, to test them and reveal them to be above reproach. Okay? What is not being said here is put them in the office of deacon, watch how they do it, and then decide if they should stay. <coughs> that is not the testing. The testing is just in the life of the church. You watch their life. You watch what God does to refine them. You are in an observation relationship. Get yourself near enough to them where you can watch them over time to see what happens as they are refined and watch for an unblameableness that God brings and then let them serve. Daniel. I just want to clarify something that you're saying. So do the, I assume elders or whoever else is, is in a position of responsibility over these people, do they impose tests on them or do they watch God's tests of them or both? I would probably say both. There might be things like, for instance, um, one of the things that we try to do with guys, and, and I think there's freedom here because it doesn't say so there's probably a degree of, of freedom but I think it would be wise to do both you're just watching what God does in a life you're watching how a guy responds to challenges in his life you're watching how he responds to blessings that God brings to his life you're, you're looking for a Christ-centered bearing in his life through just what happens in life but I think you want to also position men to be in shepherding relationships okay let's let's position let's let's get you ready to be a small group leader let's watch how that goes or I have somebody that needs somebody else to meet with him on a regular basis because he just needs to be really built up in his faith. Why don't you do it? And then I want to talk to you about how that goes. I think you want to do things like that also, if you can. It's a great question. Great question. Scott, yes. you know, to add something to Daniel, how it works out at Grace Bible, and not that it has to be this way, but one way. Uh, the couple of times that we have thought about adding an elder or even a deacon thinking about it, all the elders will ask certain people in, in their spheres that they come across, who do you see in the body? 
and, and typically that man is somebody others already are identifying how they're relating to the body, how how ministry just happens around them, and it, it's not uh, really hard to see. It's and I, and I can think when when Scott Demarest and Jacob and, and Steve became elders, uh, everybody saw that how they were already operating. Like, wow, yeah, I, I'm this person qualified just watching how they interact with the body. So that's kind of a test as well, even though it's not. You're in the middle of a test, and just people observe. Wow, yeah. ministry happens where this guy goes. Yeah, that's a good point. Very good. Now let's let's think a little bit more about this beyond reproach um, part of it in, in verse ten. What does that really mean? It, it's 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 an umbrella term. It's a summary qualification, like it is for the elders in verses um, in verse uh, two. It's the very first one out of the chutes from Paul's mouth. An overseer then must be above reproach. Now, it's a different word than the word that is used in verse 10, but it's, but it's, a, it's similar. Uh, the same concept is, is, is there, being beyond um, an accusation. An accusation cannot stick to you. Um, and, and then what Paul does in both lists is he surrounds or he follows that umbrella term with a bunch of specifics. And so what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, look for all these qualities. If they're there in his life, guess what? You can say in an umbrella kind of way over him, hey, he's above reproach. Because I can't find a fault in any one of these specifics. Um, now, the important thing to think about here is, is that when you see this word above reproach, you should not think that's a term that is exclusive for those who hold an office in the church of elder or deacon. Beyond reproach. Well, that's those guys. Because here's what I want you to see. Um, in verse 10, the word used there for beyond reproach is anegkletos. Anegkletos in the Greek. It just means what we've said. Beyond reproach, you can't be arraigned in a court of law. Now, go over to Titus chapter 1, verse 6. That's the other list of elder qualifications. So Paul again does something similar with Titus, who is in Crete. And he says in verses, uh, verse 5, For this reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, if any man is above reproach. Same word, anegkletos. So Paul used the word anegkletos for who? Deacons. And he used it for elders. That's great. Now what I want you to do is I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hold on. Because you know where this is going next, don't you? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. Um, let's back up to verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, watch this, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what that word is? Anegkletos. And who is this for? Deacons or elders? Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> All of us are to be blameless, above reproach. All of you 
because you are a Christian, are to be above reproach in your life. All of you are. Go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The last word, beyond reproach, is the word anegkletos. The word blameless is another word that's in the same family. Paul's heeping up terms. What do I mean holy? Um, let me say it another way. Uh, blameless. Uh, let me think of it another way. Beyond reproach. And is he writing to deacons or elders here? Everybody. All of us are to be that way. So what is then Paul doing? What's the point? Deacons are to be above reproach. Can't be a deacon if they don't have that qualification. Elders are to be blameless or above reproach. Can't be one if they don't have that um, that, uh, that qualification. But all of us are supposed to be that way. So what is it that Paul is doing here? Um, in one sense, there is no difference between general Christian in the church and a man being considered for deacon or elder. No difference. And yet on another level, deacons and elders are to be leaders in that quality of above approach. All of us have it. But you're looking for men who are kind of leaders in that quality, who are helping set the example for the rest of us, because we all want to be that, but we're looking for the guy who's kind of maybe the, the pace car, who's on the same track, who's got four wheels like we do, who's got gasoline like we do, who's, he looks just like us, but yet he's the guy that we're kind of looking at and saying, you know, he's a good man for me to look at as I want to be above the approach. Do you understand what the deal is on this qualification? Calvin had a, a great way of um, summarizing this verse. He said, those chosen to be a deacon should not be unknown. You don't pick a man that nobody has seen. You don't have a guy come in the side door who goes, dude, I know how to do that ministry in the church. I could do that. Great, we've been looking for somebody. Deacon. Bring them to the body and everybody goes, who's that? That doesn't happen. These men should not be unknown. Their integrity should be ascertained by all. This means that this choice is not to fall at random and without selection on any that come to hand or mind, but those men are to be chosen who are approved by their past life in such a manner that after what may be called full inquiry, they are ascertained to be well qualified. There's an observation relationship that's going on. Okay? Now, here's my... That implies time, right? It implies time. Now, here's my question. Why did Paul put verse 10 there? Because where do the qualifications start for deacon? In verse 11? Well, they actually start back in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy 3. So why did he kind of take this statement and bury it in the middle of the qualifications? I think he did it because he 
wants to make it very difficult to separate this whole testing and above reproach idea from the qualifications. It's just buried right in the middle of it. Okay. Um, so this is to be very important. And so one of the reasons, I mean, the, the best thing that, a, that an eldership can do in a church is those men need to, to somehow be close enough to the men in the church that they can watch. They can be, they can be thoughtful. They, can, they, they have an opportunity to speak into a life. They have an opportunity to position men and shape them and say, here, go over here. Serve in this, this way, and, and, we'll, and, and then we'll talk about what you're doing. There needs to be that kind of thing going on. And, and you know, I hope BUILD allows us to have something like that, that at least helps it. it, it 35 men, try to get them closer to leadership, eldership in the church. So we can watch, so you can learn, so you can, we can be in an observation relationship more so together. And that needs to take place, obviously, outside of BUILD. BUILD is not a track for deaconhood in one sense, right? But in another sense, I hope it would lead you, be a, a tool that God would use. All right, now let's jump into some of the quali- all of the qualifications. No, back in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Dignity, verse 8. Um, I try to, with each one of these, give you a sentence that kind of describes what dignity is. Here it is. A serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. So you can fill in the blank there. A serious <coughs> bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. Um, the word means seriousness of mind that leads to an outward, visible quality of seriousness. There's seriousness of mind buried deep inside me, and guess what? It works its way out into my life, but there is seriousness of character. There's a quality of seriousness. The seriousness of mind is it's observable, and it's engaging. I confuse this in my own life with seriousness, with intensity. (laughs) I'm intense about just about everything. And I would like to sanctify that intensity and call it seriousness. I'm dignified because I'm intense. There's only one problem. Intensity is not engaging, always. (laughs) It can be like, give me a break. I want to get away from you. But somebody who's dignified understands it's not just intensity, it's I I have a serious mind about things and people go, I like that, I need that, I want that. So it's an observable outward manifestation that's appealing, it's winsome, it causes you to respect that person, not look for ways to get away from them, okay? They're worthy of honor is another translation. It's not an overbearing weight that the person has. Um, it's not alienating. The opposite of this, would, of this quality would be being silly or flippant all the time. Somebody who would make light of serious matters. Matt Dodd, question. Is this um, related at all to the other qualification of being so reminded? Um, actually... What? Is it related to the qualification of being sober-minded? And that's in verse... 3-2. Yeah, you know what? It's not the same word, um, but actually, do you know what is the same word? It's um, the one given to the women 
to be temperate. Let me um, confirm that if I remember right. Yeah. So, no, it's not the same meaning. There's similarness to it. Um, the word for sober-minded means clear-headed more so. We'll talk about that. But he, he says that the wives need to have that. So we'll talk about that. Um, so it is, the opposite is being silly, flippant, somebody who makes light of serious matters. Being, if you're dignified, it doesn't mean that you don't have joy. That you're always so serious there's no joy. Okay, it doesn't mean that. Uh, it's not coldness. It, people sometimes when they're serious can be cold towards you and others. Um, that's not what it is. And so the question I have for you is, is do you see this kind of qualification, uh, this character quality, is it shaping your conversations? One of the things you can start to do is, is start to just kind of keep a catalog in your mind, uh, even if you want to on paper, of, of your conversations that you have with people. And ask yourself the question, ask your roommate, ask your wife, ask your, a friend, ask your person who's discipling you, ask the person who leads your small group. When you think of conversations that you've had with me, do you think of <coughs> dignity in me? Or do you see kind of a flippant, always looking to make a joke about something? Um, that kind of a thing. Being dignified does not mean that you cannot have a sense of humor. Okay? But it means that you're, you have self-control with your humor, and you know when it's appropriate, and you even want to use your humor in a way that builds people up, builds unity. Humor can do that, not alienate, right? So, dignity. Uh, second qualification, not double-tongued in verse 8. Not double-tongued. Um, here's how I would summarize this. As notes are compared on the man's words, discrepancies do not become apparent. Discrepancies. D-I-S-C-R-E-P-A-N-C-I-E-S. Discrepancies. The word is, is dialogos. Two words. He's not double-tongued, or he doesn't have two tongues. He doesn't have one tongue talking this way over here, and then he has another tongue talking over here. So when you compare notes on what the guy says, you shouldn't go, well, that's not what he said to me. Not having two words, not having two tongues. There's, in other words, there's consistency in what he says. He says one thing to one person, and he goes to another person, and he says the exact same thing. There's not hypocrisy in the speech, where like he would be wearing a mask, you know, in one conversation and taking the mask off and talking another way in the other. There's sincerity with the words. The speech is characterized by integrity, consistency, honesty, and therefore trustworthiness. Now, think about this. I, I want to keep kind of coming back whenever we can to Acts 6 and think about that example of the seven guys having to take care of the widows who didn't have food. Remember. Racial tension. Greek widows were being overlooked because there was a favoritism being played towards the Hebrew widows in the church. Racial tension's going on. What kind of a man do you want to have step in the middle of that? Somebody who, when he's talking to the Greek women, he goes, yeah, I know, Peter said. And then he goes over to the Hebrew women and says, yeah, you know what, let me tell you something's going on here. And he's got something else he says? And a deacon, oftentimes, in his ministry, is moving back and forth between two groups of people in the body. Those whom he's ministering with, and then he moves back over here to the elders, because he had his hands 
the elders' hands were laid on him to represent and to, and to be affirmed for ministry. When that deacon is over talking to the people, saying one thing, what do you need to count on when that deacon comes and talks to the elders? Says the same thing. If you're not that kind of a man, it's hard for people to trust you. And I think for in my own life, when I see myself tempted in these directions, it's because I'm far more aware of the wrong audience. I'm aware of the people I'm talking to, and so I've got to shape my words for them. And then I get over here, oh, and I'm with the different people, and I need to shape my words for them. And I need to remind myself that the only way that saves you in this is there's one audience always, and it's who? God. When I'm talking to you widows, and it's tough, God's watching. God's watching. And I'm going to let my words be controlled by him, and he gives me one tongue, one word. And then I'm going to go over to the elders, and maybe I made some decisions over there that weren't the best. Um, and I could portray it this way and shade it this way as I talk to them, but God, you're watching. And you gave me one word, one tongue, and here's what happened. Okay, Danny. How close is that to uh, James 1 where it says double-minded? Um, I think it's, it's very similar uh, in, the, in the concept um, where Paul would put on the beginning of the word that word, that number two, we have two minds, and it's, it's very similar. Um, the mind uh, being more probably thought of as the inward evaluation of this. I mean, if, you, if you're, you're double-tongued, you've got a what? You've got a double mind or a double heart. Right. So uh, it's just a matter of which vantage point you're looking at. Are you looking at it from the inside out, or are you looking at it from the words in? That's a great point. So does the content of your speech or your portrayal of events of what happened, does it change as your audience changes, guys? Evaluate yourself on that, and and the deacon is the guy. He's just simple. I just got I just got one one message. That's it. What I said to you is what I want to say over here in this setting. Not addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. Here's what um, how we can summarize this definition uh, or this qualification in verse eight: a repeated, habitual turning of thought to or a use of alcohol. Um, the word is wine, um, but obviously it could be strong drink, it could be beer, it could be wine, it's, it's alcohol. Now, the reason that I put in there a repeated, habitual turning is that the, the verb used in this is a present tense verb, which means that it's continually happening. So he's saying you're looking for somebody who's not continually, all the time, just being driven towards wine. Okay. Um, and the reason I put the word thought in there, because you would look at that and you go, well, why is he, where would he get not addicted to much wine? There's a way to construct it grammatically, the words, and syntactically, the way that the words are related to each other. There's a way to do it in which you want to show that what you're talking about is a thought process is involved in this. And it's by using the dative, uh, which you don't need to worry about. But I'm just trying to help you understand that what, the way that it's constructed, there's a sense in which Paul is saying, we're talking about the thought life here too. Not just, did he actually reach for six beers and slam them before he went and fed widows? There's something going on in the man's mind that needs to be considered as well. A repeated, habitual turning of thought in his mind also to alcohol, not just the actual drinking of it, okay? And therefore then, question needs to be asked, 
How then is his thought life and his judgment and his discernment affected by that continual turning in his thought to that alcohol, to the wine? Okay? How is his thought life influenced by it? A way to, to describe or give you a picture of what this would be like, the kind of person this would be, as I imagine it, it would be a person who has become preoccupied with alcohol's presence in his life. Preoccupied in thought with it, that he's, he's constantly thinking about wherever he is, when he might be able to have that next drink or beer. He may not have the shakes and the sweats and everything that you get from being an addict, but his, his thought life kind of just falls there. That's his center of gravity. When, when do I have that next moment to be able to enjoy a beer with the guys? Or sit back with a beer? When, when, when's that going to be? Let's see, it's 3 o'clock now. I can be out of 5. And it just kind of, this continual falling towards that. Because he's working repeatedly in his thought life to bring it into his life. Okay? Does this say... Thou shalt not drink wine. It does not say that. That's not what I'm trying to say. I've been a part of churches where you cannot be a deacon and you cannot be an elder unless you take a vow that you are not going to be, you won't drink at all. And I am not a deacon or an elder there because I don't, number one, I'm not going to bind my conscience to that because it's not scripture. It's a man's preference. It's a church's preference. Um, this is saying there is something habitual going on in the person's thought life and habit. Now, we, as we've talked about this over years past in Build, I've had guys come up to me and go, yeah, but you know what, it really doesn't matter if it's wine. I mean, look, people get addicted to coffee too, caffeine. And I say, hey, you back off, buddy. <laughs> but let's talk about that. Does it matter what's in the blank? Don't be addicted to... Does it matter what's in the blank? In one sense, no. It doesn't matter. Because who... What man do you want to be leading anybody who enslaves himself to bubblegum? Who becomes... I mean, really, what does it matter what it is? In one, at one sense. You don't want a man who enslaves himself to things and to even good pleasures and, and good things given, you don't want to be a slave to anything. But then let's also understand that it does matter at another level what's in it. Because, look, which widows in early church in Jerusalem, um, you know, Jack here's got a caffeine headache. Um, he's trying to get this under control. Um, he's going to be serving you some bread. Versus um, Joe's here, he's got a hangover. He's still drunk from the night before. Which guy do you want serving you? Which guy do you want handling money? Which guy do you want listening to and giving counsel to people? Look, there's a world of difference we're talking about. And I think what you can probably, I think we can probably draw a circle around some, some kinds of things that would be similar to wine because of its, its alcoholic effect, the, the effects of alcohol. Wine, beer, strong drink. I think we should talk about also prescription drugs these days, which is probably far more uh, a possibility for good Christian men to get uh, attached to because addicted to because of how easy it is and how quickly doctors just prescribe it for stuff that ibuprofen will do just fine. Prescription drugs, regular drugs, 
you know, and then you can stair step down from there. I mean, you want to be careful of things that have an addictive quality to them. Tobacco. You want to be careful about caffeine. You want to be careful about a lot of things. But I don't want to say, I'm not, in one sense, I'm not prepared at all from a very fleshly standpoint to put caffeine on the same level as wine. And yet, in another sense, there, we need to be careful. Do you understand what we're trying to say here with this? You don't want to be a slave to anything. Uh, being a slave to wine is dangerous. Or beer. Or strong drink. Or prescription drugs. Because what does that do to your judgment? It does something to your judgment that caffeine doesn't do to your judgment. George, question. How does idolatry fit into this? Yeah, it's a great... What's the question, George? How does idolatry fit into this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, it's, when you, idolatry is nothing more than you submitting yourself to something that is not God creating a god out of something that is not a god at all. And so it's another way of talking about slavery to something, addiction. So yeah, it's, you know, another way to approach it, another angle to talk about it in the same way is, you know, you can talk about it as idolatry with a guy, potentially. All right. Um, not fond of sort of gain, verse 8. Finish up verse 8. Not fond of sort of gain. How do we describe this? Loving the gain of wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. Loving the gain of wealth, sordid gain, in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. It's material, monetary gain that comes from a questionable motive. It's sordid. The word means, there's something questionable about why he wants to gain. What is that that's going on? It's gain in all of the wrong kinds of ways. It's not saying that gain, wanting to gain wealth is wrong. It's saying don't do it in a sordid way. You don't want a guy in ministry serving at a servant layer of leadership in the church in such a way that he goes about trying to get gain financially in a sordid way. The position of deacon, then, that means, is not used for the sake of financial gain. Now imagine this. Look, I mean, why would they say this? Hello, Judas. He used to be in charge of the money box and used to take from it regularly. One of the twelve. This stuff happens. If Jesus has his Judas, the church can have a guy like this who will find himself going they just gave me a lot of money to go buy bread for the widows interesting there's an opportunity here <laughs> buy day old pocket the rest that's funny what scares me is an elder thought of that um, <laughs> we're all redeemed sinners <laughs> that's right. emphasis on redeemed um, yeah, or you know, and I'll tell you the way that ministry is today and stuff. It's very easy. I know a lot of the ways that we operate just out of sake of ease is uh, reimbursement, right? You need to have a reimbursement because um, it's easier to have somebody who's helping lead a ministry. For instance, when Josh Kelso, uh, when we have a monitor that that goes down and he needs to fix it, I don't go. I'll go take it. I don't call Mark Cronwall, who oversees our finances, and say, Mark, you need to go get this monitor fixed. We delegate. Josh, do what, do what it takes. 
keep, keep report to me what the, what the cost is. I want to I hear that. Go get it taken care of. And if it's easier for him to take care of it himself and we reimburse him, we do that. And we try to have you know, good controls on that. Let me see the receipt. Obviously, we don't reimburse without a receipt. Um, but you can see where there's a, a real need for this qualification even today. Um, because there's opportunities. And listen, listen, guys, my flesh, your flesh, has the potential in it already to want to gain in a sordid way. It does. And so you should protect yourself from that when you can. Um, how much attention then, question-wise, are you spending, uh, give, uh, how much attention are you giving to your spending habits in the little things? That's what you do with the little things with your money. And then think about why it's important for you to start with the little things. Um, if you're faithful in the little things, what? Oh man, give them the big things. Um, let's do, you guys want to keep going or you want to take a break right now? Let's do holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and then we'll take a break. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Here's how I would describe this one. An ever-present grasp on what is believed, which causes the conscience to affirm, to affirm, not condemn the man, or condemn his ministry. To affirm the man. There's an ever-present grasp on what is believed, which causes the conscience to affirm the man. Um, an ever-present grasp, um, by that I mean, uh, the reason I say that is that the keeping hold of the mystery of the faith is a present tense. So it's an ever-present, this guy's always grasping on, he's always hanging on to the mystery of the faith. Um, there's, a, there's a biblical conviction, there's an action in such a way that his conscience has nothing to accuse him of. Now, what he's holding on to is the mystery. Now, we've talked about this in Ephesians, um, and in Ephesians, the mystery that Paul talks about, he makes very specifically clear what it is. It is the mystery that is called the church. It's the new man, it's the body that was not known in the past, but now has been revealed. That's what the word mystery means. It's not the way that we use mystery, do you remember? We use the mystery in our language and in our setting like, Oh, you just you just can't know some of these things. That's not the way that the Greeks use it, the way that Paul used it in his day. Paul said, yeah, it was once that way, but it's not that way anymore. It's a revealed mystery. And so he says it's a mystery, not something that's incomprehensible, but it's a truth that before was shadowy, maybe difficult to know, but now it has been revealed. And what is it? He says it's the mystery of the faith. Now, the word the faith there can go two different directions. I think we even talked about this in Ephesians 4 last week, right? The word, the faith, can go either towards meaning my trust in Jesus Christ, my entrusting of myself to Jesus Christ, or it can refer to the body or the content of truth which we are to believe, the faith. What do you, what do you believe in? What faith do you believe in? What body or content of truth do you believe? It's the faith. It's the Christian faith. And I think that's what he's talking about here. In what sense is the faith, which would be the gospel and, and the doctrine that comes from the gospel, in what sense is that now revealed when it wasn't before? Well, this is a little technical, but I want you to follow with me. In one sense, the gospel has always been revealed. In fact, you can look at it as Galatians 3, 
where Paul says, and this is why beforehand the gospel was preached to Abraham. Okay, so now, in one sense, the gospel's been around. And what is the gospel? It is uh, righteousness by faith, okay? Uh, a substitute in your place, not you working towards it. That's not the gospel. It's, it's you believing and trusting your life and God declaring righteous. Um, that, that was not a mystery. But there were shadows built into that that no, now no longer in Paul's day are shadowy because Christ has come. And the fullness of what faith um, and being declared righteous on the basis of faith, now it's clearer than ever before. The mystery has been revealed. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. So there is an ever-present grasp that the deacon has on the re now revealed truth that the gospel is and all of its doctrine associated with it. Now, a lot of times you think of deacons as guys who they just sweep up after meetings. They are the guys who fix and take care of broken sprinkler heads outside and, and fertilize and do things like that. Um, and that's all we're looking for in a guy. Just needs to do that. Um, look, was, was Philip that way? My goodness, he, he, was, he knew the word of God and he could preach and he could teach and he could handle God's word. Was Stephen that way? He gave an amazing sermon and he got killed for it. He got killed because not because it was a bad sermon. <laughs> he got killed because he was accurate. And they did not like his accuracy on it. He understood the scriptures. Both of those men were able to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, let me give you a couple of verses you can look at. Um, Paul, uh, you just write these off to the side. Chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 19. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, Paul likes to put faith and conscience together. Let's talk just briefly about what a conscience is. Conscience is like that, um, it's like that windshield, or we could talk about it, through which you look at it. Depending on what you do to the windshield, you will be able to respond to situations biblically or not. If your windshield is all mucked up and you can't see through it and everything coming to you, you, you it, it affects how you respond to things. If it's clear, if you've kept it clear in thought and word and attitude and deed and desire and relationship, you have an opportunity to respond biblically clearly. And so the point is to keep your conscience clear. Keep it rightly informed. If you wrongly inform your conscience and say, to be a good Christian in my mind, when I sin, I have to do these three things that make me more acceptable in God's eyes. I've informed my conscience, and now when I respond to my sin, I do it in a weird way. I can't even, when I look at Scripture, I'm, I'm hindered because my conscience is not clear. Do you understand? And so what you do is you have to inform your conscience. It's that protective seal, see-through seal that God gives every man and in Christ being regenerated with a new heart and with the Spirit, now you seek to feed it so that it is fed well and it is healthy and it is clear and it can help you to respond rightly to things that you need to. Daniel. So Paul says, is it Philippians, that when he was persecuting the church, he did it with a clear conscience, right? That he, he's always had a clear conscience. Yeah, I'd have to look. Yeah, I'm sorry, I forget the exact reference. 
Second Timothy one, not that one. There's a sincere faith within Timothy. This first Corinthians is four four. Yeah. Four. I am conscious of nothing. That's not conscience. I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. Not that. Um, you said Philippians. Yeah, I think you were wrong. I thought it was where he gave his his list of everything that he had. Yeah, that's chapter three of Philippians. It says he was found blameless in regards to the righteousness which is in the law. He had confidence to put in the flesh. If anybody had confidence to put in the flesh, it would appear to be him. Second Corinthians one twelve. Is that what it is? But there's another passage that says the testimony of that confidence would be made in the word of simplicity. Okay. Yeah, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially toward you. Paul has a, cl- a clear conscience. His, he, he is, his conscience, the way that he has handled himself with them, it does not condemn him. So your, your conscience is given to you to do one of two things. It either affirms what you've done because you were obedient to God, or it condemns you <laughs> because you weren't obedient. And that's why you must feed your conscience well so that it can do its job well in you to either affirm you or condemn you when you need to be admonished, warned, condemned, in the sense of being you're guilty, you didn't obey the way you should. If you have other questions on specific passages, we can do that as, as we look. Um, anyway, the reason I gave you those other passages is I wanted you to see how Paul uses faith and conscience together. Um, what role then the question as we finish this one out what role then does the word of God play in your life because the deacon is to be one who's holding ever present continually to what the Bible deacons are men of the word of God and the way they hold on to it they do it in such a way that their conscience doesn't condemn them it actually affirms them I'm holding on to God's word rightly. I, the best that I can, I'm, I'm striving to know it. My conscience does not condemn me. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, my present grasp and hold on the faith, on the gospel, on the truth, does my, what does my conscience do with me? Do I, does it condemn me for what I'm doing or not doing? Or does it affirm me? So you can think on those questions there. Now, we will then jump into chapter 3, verse 12, in just a moment after we take a break, okay? So take a break for five minutes, and we'll come back, all right? All right, let's pick back up. We're going to jump into verse 12. And, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the way the flow of verses 8 down through 13, he says, deacons likewise, and, and he describes 
deacon qualifications in verse 8 and in verse 9. Verse 10 is that verse that's buried in there, the, the testing and the being beyond reproach. And then verse 11 is that whole women thing, and so I'm going to set that aside for a moment. And then in verse 12, he picks up with deacons again. He uses the same technical term for deacons. And so what I want to do is I want to finish deacons by jumping down to verse 12. Do you understand that? I just want to make sure it's clear why we skipped verse 10, because we already covered that. And we're going to cover verse 11, but not until we finish deacons in verse 12. So uh, verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Um, by the way, you know in the NAS that when they italicize something, it's not for emphasis. <laughs> only one wife. It's there because they're supplying a word to smooth it out that's not actually there. So the last thing you want to do is emphasize it. It's, okay. um, it might be right, but it's, you, it's the last thing you want to do. Um, literally, a one-woman man. That's what you would call this qualification. A one-woman man. You can fill that blank in. A one-woman man. Now, I heard something about this qualification. I heard Don Carson um, run through all of the elder qualifications. And this is one for an elder as well. And he said something on this that I never really thought before that I, I just haven't had time to dig into it more. He thinks, I'll tell you what he thinks and then I'll tell you what we have here. And, and I think there might be something of, of merit in what he's thinking. He thinks that contextually, culturally in their day, um, it was very possible for men to have, to be polygamous. And um, he, he presents a very interesting case for monogamy, <laughs> a one woman man. And I just never thought of that. And, and what challenges me on this, I'm just going to think out loud with you, and you can throw rocks at me later if you want. Um, but the whole one-woman-man concept that we have, which is good and right and taught in Scripture in regards to, um, you know, you can be married to only one woman, but not be a one-woman man at one level, right? Because your mind is maybe in love with somebody else. Okay. Um, or actually really in love with somebody else who's not in expressing that love physically in ways that, and emotionally, sexually in ways that, but still married to one woman. Now that would be a disqualification immediately, right? Um, but I wonder if maybe we take a lot of that and import that back in there when there might be another option to consider. And, um, and Carson thinks that, and he makes a whole case for why it's really wise for if the gospel goes into a, a people where the leaders and the ones in power in and among the people display, one of the displays of their power is multiple wives. And then what he's saying is a qualification like this for elder that when it comes into that people, it says, yeah, you've got your view of power through having multiple wives. Um, one. And, and it lets, puts everybody, it, it now says the one who's actually going to have a degree of influence and leadership in the church is not one who is necessarily modeling the same power play as the people. But it's, I find that compelling um, to think about. I haven't landed there, um, but here's where I have landed. And um, it's not so much first and foremost 
disqualification and exhortation that the elder must be married to one woman. I don't think that's the case. I think um, a man can be married, as I said, and not be a one-woman man. I think a man cannot be married and be a one-woman man. Because in his mind, he has committed himself to that one woman. He may not even know who she is. But I am a man who will only ever commit myself to one woman, the woman that I will marry someday. I can't see her face, but I love her, and I will be faithful to her by God's grace. That kind of man should be an elder, if all the other qualifications match up as well. Do you understand? So it's, it's, and it's more than, than just remaining sexually pure indeed. Because men can have emotional attachments, emotional affairs with women in ways that completely destroy their credibility and their integrity. Okay? Mike. So that, or like let's say evidence is where Um, that's a great question. Um, let's let's take that example first. Um, a believer <coughs> who um, falters in his sexual purity in his marriage. Um, the, the the way that guys view this is some would would appeal to uh, what is a Proverbs six, um, where if a man, um, I why am I paraphrasing it when I have my Bible sitting here. Um, let me locate it and I'll make sure you can turn back to Proverbs and I'll try to help you yeah it's chapter 6 um, what they would appeal to the ones who would say that man should never be uh, even though he may be restored to godliness of character within the church um, he will not be able to serve in an above-reproach way because that mark left on him is uh, a serious mark. And they would appeal to Proverbs 6, verse 32. Uh, let me even back up. Yeah, I need to back up. Uh, even to... I'm going to back up to verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you are awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on the account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread." and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief. And here's where he draws a contrast between the, the man who sins 
in stealing versus men of sins in adultery. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry, but when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. In other words, there's a, in, 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 a, in the law, there was a means for the man to uh, bring about restitution. He must give all the substance of his house. Verse 32, in, in contrast, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who, uh, he who would destroy himself does that. Wounds in disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. And I don't think he means not be blotted out before God. I think he means before the eyes of especially his neighbor's wife's husband and others, perhaps. For jealousy enrages a man, the husband, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. He might forgive, but there is such a damage that is done by violating the oneness of flesh and going with another that the people who would say um, if a believer has committed adultery um, it's insurmountable now others believe that yeah you can be restored from that I would tend towards this position because um, I think it is it it carries such an integrity it is such a there's such a mar on the, on the integrity and the character of the man. Can he be forgiven by God? If he's a believer, he already is. Can he be restored to godliness of character in fellowship with the local church? Yes. Should we aim for that? Yes. Does that mean that we should then say equals he can be an elder again? Or should be an elder at some point? That's where I would question. Now, what about the other side? Um, a man commits adultery before he's a believer. I don't draw the same conclusion on that, personally. Some do. Some very good, spiritual, godly men say if there's been adultery at any point in a man's life, even before Christ, he will never be an elder. I find that hard to believe. I, you know, there was a murderer who became an apostle. Um, and I, I think that you're either a new creation or you're not and and there's a chance for a, a, a new slate uh, a new slate is given um, Tom what would you add or take away from that anything no you're doing a great job keep up these are hard questions just the one who's not married like just a young man and young woman in I think it's that's pretty serious because I think um, although I don't know if I put it at the same level because um, you're not one flesh um, but I and and that's not technically adultery that's fornication Uh, I don't want to draw rigid distinctions but I'd say every case I'd want to look at really carefully and not have a blanket necessarily statement that would go over all of them um, you know, I think you want to ask yourself a question. Well, when was that? It was, it was three months ago. When did that happen? It was, it was 30 years ago. <clears throat> you know, you spoke about time. Yeah. You know, and about the circles that we dwell within. And, you know, everybody who sees us and knows us or we deal with us or deals with us in the time shift that we spend with each other. That you can see things 
or see a person for what he is? Is he double-tongued, or is he, you know, full of uh, drunkenness, or the way he is? You know, in that aspect, for elder, you know, one would say he could pass through deacon before ever becoming an elder, because there's, isn't there only a small difference, because one could say they're both godly and irreproachable, they're above blame, but yet one is older in time and uh, wisdom, and you can only gain wisdom through time, or building a character, uh, and that way it's on display for everybody to see whether or not has he changed? Is he different from what he is or what he was? Yeah. Like you said, in the creation aspect of yeah, you know, being a new creature. Right. So is your question revolving around is there is there a difference between deacon and elder that that applies here that would like are you are, are what are you trying to um, what are you trying to say in regards to adultery? In in regards to a, a man, is he qualified for? De might he be qualified for deacon, but not elder? Right. In this, because of the time aspect, let's say, you know, yes, it did happen, mm -hmm. and he so repented and turned away from that, and time has proven that he did not go yeah. back and do it again, and he truly turned away from that. Yeah. Uh, would that be a cause for holding them back still, or? Yeah, I would want to. I would want to um, say, at this level, the qualification for deacon in this is exactly the same as this for elder. And so, in one sense, on these two, you can't have two different standards for which you view a deacon versus an elder. You know, yeah, I'd want to. I'd want to look at the the man. When did it happen? What circumstances was it under? Right. And all of that. I still want to look at that. That doesn't mean that I would necessarily have a different position. But I, you know, you need to shepherd people um, specifically in their situations and, and figure it out and, and watch it. And uh, yeah, Daniel. To what extent is proper repentance part of above reproach? And since we know we're, I mean, we're not expecting, you said we're not going to be Christ, right? I mean, we're not going to be sinless people. So does part of above reproach involve proper dealing with sin when it arises? And how does that factor in here? Yeah, the, the, the main issue here on any of these is not that a man has never sinned in being fond of sordid gain. He has never sinned in regards to being undignified. He has never once sinned. And the, the, the point is, is there's not, that there's a, that there's a repentance level of what there is a, a change that's taking place. And there is a pattern that is being developed in his life of the absence of that. Um, so yes, there, repentance must be looked at. Um, a perfect, nobody in this room has ever repented perfectly of any sin. Um, so you're not looking for perfect repentance, but you're looking for more than just, I'm sorry, okay, I'm sorry, I did it. Is that a, let's move on. That's not satisfactory. Um, and it's also not, um, you know, somebody just saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Forgive me. Let's just get over that, forgive me. <coughs> okay, I can ask for forgiveness in all the wrong ways. Um, Denny brought up a great point of, um, 
it needs to go all the way to um, to him who knows the right thing and does not do it, to him it is sin. So now we're talking about even, okay, yeah, I've repented of that, but now I'm applying a new principle in my life that I know what is right for me, and I'm not going to do it. And so I think you want to be looking as, you know, we can think, as Denny and I were talking, you know, a clear conscience is like this, and repentance is like this in our minds, but actually it's like, oh my goodness. Now you're looking for a man who's perfect from all the way over here to all the way over there? Yes, and no. I mean, <laughs> you know, how do you answer that? Huh. Yeah, I, I think from Mike's first question all the way through Daniel's last question, I, I think there's one book in scripture that would really identify the answer to every question that was brought up in the first job. And, and it starts in chapter one with, to what Daniel's saying, if you are in sin and in your mind you are justifying part of it, there's a huge problem because God says he is light and this is dark and if we're saying dark's light we're calling him a liar to begin with and, and I think I need to go tie it back to uh, 2 Corinthians 12 5 about examining ourselves but in, in light of Mike's question where it started I, th I think First John answers that question because I think in our culture we have uh, so dumbed down what a Christian is. Because First John, it's very clear, it, it's one that confesses sin. It, it's one that calls light, light, and dark, dark. Uh, it, it talks about loving the brothers. It talks about uh, the, the discernment that comes because we're God lovers, we love God's word, we're in God's word, we find our discernment for living in God's word. And so I would even dive in a little bit if, on a case-by-case -case basis if somebody said, here's my life 10 years ago. Let's talk about your walk. Where, where were you in your faith? Uh, and somebody might have thought they were a Christian, but when you uncover it, maybe you really weren't a Christian. And, and I, th I, th I just don't think it's a subject you broad brush. I, th I think you really just need to sit and just, what, what does God's word say a believer is? What, what, were you this man? No, I really wasn't that man. Yeah. I think you need to do some examining here. Especially when the Christian culture has, like you said, created such a watered down, dumbed down view of, here's what, here's what a Christian is. You know? Thank you. Well, let's, let's step back one, uh, one step further then and, and this is not a true story. <laughs> let's say. Oh, you have a friend of a friend. But let's say that I was in an adulterous relationship in my neighborhood before I was saved. So now I have, uh, the Lord has redeemed me, and I'm at Grace Bible Church, and I am. Um, I am attempting to display elder qualities. But my neighborhood, who is the world, sees me as an adulteress. So if I achieve the position, or if the Lord allows me to have the position of elder at Grace Bible or deacon or whatever, my neighbor's going to say, this guy was in an adulterous relationship now he's an elder at this church? 
I, I understand, Tom, what you're saying is that I can go to him and I can say, you know, this is the old Denny. This is the new Denny. But the world does not understand the old and the new. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you're going to wrestle through. You're going to so, have to really. Uh, I mean, you know, we can say that, you know, that was B.C., before Christ. This is after Christ. But... Here's the only thing I would, I, and I, I don't disagree with you one bit. It's sticky. This is not easy. But here's the, here's the one thing I would say on the other side of that is that you have the Apostle Paul who had a, an office that was very unique. And I'm not saying that we should make that be the pattern for elders necessarily. But in one sense, here's a man who, when he was giving his defense over and over to pagans, he was the one drawing attention to his I used to kill people. I held their coats. And next door neighbor Feinstein uh, isn't too thrilled. <laughs> yeah. So and 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 so, how do you? I don't know. I mean, this is this is tough. And I think every church has to, to take it and has to look at qualifications. Has to look at what Tom talks about. Where were you at? Where are you at in your thinking? And then you have to look at the setting and say, you know, we could check off all of the boxes from our vantage point, from where we're at. But there is still this just blight where you live. And the church might decide at that point to say, not now, brother. They might. And it might be the wisest thing to do for the gospel. Yeah. Richard. As soon as Paul was converted and he started preaching the gospel, did they want to kill him? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah. what he was saying when he says, my conscience is clear. Because he was looking back at what he did before, but he had a perfect substitute. That's what made his conscience clear. Yeah, I think we were looking at some of those passages in the, on the break. What, what I actually think he's saying, there, and that is a true statement, Tom, not that there's nothing false about that. But I don't think when Paul says, I have a clear conscience as I stand before you, I don't think he's talking about before Christ. I think he's saying, here I am in a court. This is Acts 23.1. He's standing before a court, and, and as one who is potentially guilty, and he's saying, I have a clear conscience the way I've acted. I don't think he means when I was Pharisee Saul. I think he means as Apostle Paul and what I've been doing. I got here today. I know I have an appearance in your eyes because guys who walk into this court have an appearance of guilty. And I'm telling you, I have a clean conscience, a clear one. And I think he means because he has not done anything before God to break any of God's, God's law, Christ's law. Um, but, yeah. I mean, you, look, you, you set up principles and you follow what Scripture says. And you still have to take, sometimes in some situations, man by man. Man by man. Because you might be able to check off passages and principles and evaluations and still go, you know, for the sake of, of, of the ministry of the gospel, it's probably not the best time well, from our manly human standpoint. And certainly in Denny's case, uh, the elder qualifications specifically, you must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Yeah. Um, you know, in the, in the scenario that you set up, Denny, that, that person would not necessarily have that. Now, there's a possibility that at some point that man could re live a repentant life in front of his neighbors and have a good reputation and have the neighbor's testimony being, this guy was like this and now he's like this and we all don't know what happened, but we know he's like this now. And, yeah. and, and that would be a case where, does he have a good reputation with those outside the church? Yeah, he does. Yeah, and time is his friend in that. Yeah. And what you do with a guy is you don't try to, if he's got that kind of scenario that, that you described, then 
you don't try to extract them from it and put them in a different one. You push them into it and say, live among those people. Let them see what you are. Help them to understand um, and, and see what happens over time. You might gain a reputation among them as is uh, yeah, the verse uh, with a reputation with outsiders. I, I think as a society we tend to minimize what that is. That that would mean would your coworker say, Are you a hard worker? Yeah. That that you're that you're giving your employer what he deserves for the way she pays you. It, it is do you pay your bill? You know, it, it is so full orb yeah. that and I don't think because I, I think we look at well, yeah, I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, you know, messed with my neighbor. You know, blah, blah. I mean, it, it isn't the most mundane things we do. I get out of bed and I go to work. You know, how much more mundane do people look at me and say, wow, I got a great work ethic, or yeah. Man, that guy's a slouch. And let me throw one more wrench in the whole thing, because I can and I like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> what happens when um, you have a bad reputation with those outside? because of your holiness. Because that happens too. And then stop talking about Jesus. Yeah. And he's driving he's us. He's divisive. Crazy. He's driving a wedge between us because he wants to talk about Christ all the time. He's so intolerant. And the church could go, you know, you've got this lousy reputation out there. Um, will you shut up so you can become an elder? No, I don't think so. Happy God. Last one, then we're moving on. Okay, in all of this, so you have the outsiders, mm -hmm. and then in the church, you have a church, you have a church elders, and they have, they have one mind biblically. How does the outside people inf I mean, change, I mean, influence the decision the church leader will make? Because you find out this guy was from outside the church, and if he, he turned from whatever he was doing out there, we all have been out there. Yeah. I think we have a new thing here yeah. that. Right. I mean, we don't have to worry about it. I mean, yeah. I don't want to say we don't have to worry about it. Right. Have to be there, there may be effects from what he once was. But I think, I think what you're trying to say, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you tell me if this is what you're trying to say. Um, what Paul's talking about with having a good reputation outside the church, he's talking about as a Christian man in the way that he lives in this new life in Christ out there. Look, you're not, you're not cutting corners. You're, not, you're doing like what Tom said. You're, you're being diligent on that, where they could not accuse you as pagans on what you're doing. Yeah, he's, he's an honest man. I, you know, I've got to give him credit for that. Is it, are you talking about that? or? Yeah, I think I, I'll say that. I mean, if, uh, if you're a new believer and I don't have to leave, you have to leave. You don't have to be double-minded. In a church, out of church, you have to be straight. Right. And if, I know outside, they will hate you. They'll try to say you're biased. Advice food, you talk about the Lord. But at the same time, the, the person outside the church cannot come there and say, you know what, that guy, man, we'll be drinking with him all night, we'll be chasing the other women with him on the street. And now he's a pastor in that church? And the guys are not in church, or even if they just show up once in a while. You see, so I don't think they have that. Yeah, they don't. They don't have our mind, they don't have our. Um, grid through which we look and so we in one sense you uh, you have to take whatever they say with a grain of salt in another sense they might have something really helpful to, to point out that we don't see so yeah, that's cool. yeah. let's let's keep trucking on if we can good managers of their children and own households verse 12 
good managers of their children and their own households. Um, I would describe it this way. Provides direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. Uh, the blank there to fill in is oversight. Provides direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. Um, the word for good managers is, the word for manage there is um, where it, it, it has two parts. It has a preposition put on the front of it, which means that that makes it close. It's the word for stand, and you put the preposition before or in front of on that. Standing in front of. It means that the man is standing before his family. He is in proximity to his family. He is over his family. He is standing near it. He's not ruling from afar, standing off from afar. He is standing over it. There's connection between him and his household. Um, and it's ongoing because it's a present tense verb, uh, a present tense idea. Um, and it's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If a man is standing over a smaller number of lives, and he's close to that smaller number of lives, and you can say there's good management going on, there's good oversight being taken place, so you have reason to conclude that, well, if we broaden his oversight into the church, we have reason to conclude that he can probably do that too. And the point of this passage is, and this qualification, is that if he's standing over them and he can't oversee even them, we have no reason to conclude that he'll be a different man when he stands among more people. It's more of the negative side, right? It's not a guarantee that because he can shepherd four people that he'll be able to shepherd 40 people. But it's certainly a guarantee that if he can't shepherd four people, there's no way he's going to shepherd 40 people well. You understand? That's the idea that's going on here. So, you guys, the question um, would be, how connected are you to your household? You, you can't be this guy who's just constantly distracted. And I, I would warn you single guys of this, who might be living with roommates, you might be living alone. Don't develop a pattern in your life where you're just constantly gone. It's constantly gone. Just not there. Just, I'm, I'm just busy. I'm always doing stuff. Because when you get married, I know in your mind you think, oh, it'll all be different. <laughs> no, you are who you are. And you go wherever you are. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's true. <laughs> and you're going to bring what you are everywhere you are. So be careful the kind of habits that you, you begin to pattern in your life so that when you are there with somebody that you need to oversee in a way like a husband is to a wife, or a father is to children that you've developed good patterns. Scott, can yeah. I say, Please. I know it's a time crunch. That's fine. And I know Scott's talking about action, about being somewhere else, but I'll tell you what, passivity is ah. just as much an action. Yeah. You know, being checked out playing video games, or for the dads here, when you're at home and you hear your wife having to discipline mm -hmm. one of your children, and you just sit there and do nothing. The passivity is simple. Yeah, I have it written down. You can be present, but not standing over your family. It's very possible. So, yeah. What do you do if a man is in an office of deacon or elder as a married man has no children? And then he has children, or his household grows while he's in office. Um, what do you do with that? Well, he's immediately disqualified. Because you have no idea if he's standing over that new one. No, that's not true. 
<laughs> what do you do? I think, he, I think it's reasonable. You watch. Was, is he, hopefully you put him in office because he was standing over his family when there was just one other person. And then what do you do when one or two more come? You keep watching <laughs> as he stands over them. And as that family grows, if there's ever a time that you believe his management is, this is, I know he's there, I know he's present, this is not working as it grows, you know, then you've got a qualification issue. Now, some would say that's why you never put a man in as an elder who, until he is older and has all, and everything can be seen to be true of his whole family. And that would be one way to do it. And I don't think that's the case with what is being described here. You can do that. And I know guys who put a lot of weight on the term elder. It means older. That is true. Originally it did mean that. But that is not necessarily the case uh, with the word. It means maturity. And um, what do you do especially with Paul when he went through his missionary journeys and came back a matter of short period of time later and he appointed elders in every city? How long have they been believers? How long were their kids? Were they all, did he only do it with guys who had kids out of the home and were grown and all? You know, I don't, I don't think that's the, the, the heart and the principle of what's going on. I think it's a watching. Is he standing over the lives of those in his house? Yes, he is. He's qualified. What if that changes? Watch him. <laughs> you know, what would you do with any other quality? quality? When we put him in office, he was a man of dignity. Watch him. Because you know what? He might not be a man of dignity someday. And you need to take a look at that. All right. And the family grows up as well as out. And a man who maybe does a really good job with his family when they're little kids, when they get to be teenagers, may not. You may have to talk to him and say, you know, I think you need yeah. to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, that's a good point. I mean, to me, teachable, coachable, one who receives instruction is very is critical here. Yeah, and you've got to be. A, you're going to run into situations that you've never been in before. All right. <laughs> you know. And that's what this is why life is so important in the body. To be able to go yeah. and sit with somebody who's been there and say, okay, when you see your fifth grader responding this way, this is my first fifth grader, I don't know. When you see a fifth grader responding this way, I know what I did when she was a kindergartner. I know what I did when she was in second grade. Different. How, what, what do I do now? And and you, and you get coached, and you get the tips, and you get prayer, and you get encouragement, and you get admonishment, and you get all that you get, and you go do, it and you just try to be faithful as best you can, and you have the body watch. You watch, okay? Deacon's wives. Let's tackle this, okay? Verse eleven, women. Now, how many of your versions say deacons' wives? ESV. Um, says that? Their wives. Their wives, okay. Uh, yeah, their wives. And their would be the deacons, meaning their wives, their women. Um, let, let me, I'm going to read through this, so follow through on this um, so that you understand. Um, there are two options for translation with this word um, at the beginning of verse 11. Deacons' wives, meaning that you're talking about women who are specifically a, a specific set of women, women of the deacons, women who belong to the deacons. Or you can have just women in general, just any woman in the church, not necessarily connected to a husband who is a deacon. Now then there are two implications. There are implications from that. If one takes deacons' wives, meaning the women who are the wives of those deacons, 
then there are not then, what you're implying with that position is that there are not women deacons in the church or deaconesses. Do you understand? If you're saying it's deacons' wives, you are not saying that there is a classification for women in the church that's deaconesses. Does that make sense? If you take women in just a general sense, and the word certainly allows for that meaning, then the implication of what it's meant is this, that there are women deacons or deaconesses serving in the church. And that's why you can look in churches today and you'll see where they will have deacons and deaconesses, women serving as in a, in a capacity as that. So those are not just the wives of the men who are deacons, but it might just be a godly woman in general in the church who is serving in a more official servant leadership position in ministry in the church. And there are good men on both sides of this argument who have taken their different positions on it. Both of them can be defended biblically. Um, both positions have strengths. Both positions have weaknesses. It's my opinion that you have to pick the position that the weaknesses you can live with the most. And um, oftentimes there's, a, there, there's that, um, that's the way it comes down to. You have to be able to pick the position that you, you like the weaknesses the best of it. The elders here believe that it is wives of deacons that it is best to translate that. And that means we do not believe that Paul is highlighting a third office in this list. Okay? Elders, verse 1. Deacons, verse 8. Deaconesses, verse 11. Back to deacons in verse 12. Okay? And um, we don't think he's highlighting a third office. Why do we believe these women referred to by Paul are simply the wives of the deacons and not a third office of servant leadership parallel to the deacon? Um, here are six reasons, okay? And I'm good enough with reason number one, personally alone. But I, there's five more um, that I think are, are weighty. Paul does not use a third specific leadership title or office position in verse 11 like he did with both overseer elder in verse 2 and deacon in verse 8. Rather, he just used a generic word, woman, or women, for an adult woman. This generic word's meaning doesn't have to stretch really at all to mean wives, the wives of these men. But it has to stretch further to mean an official office, deaconess. And to me, right there, that for me personally is the deal killer. It would be like Paul saying, police officer, fireman, woman. I'm serious. Would, would you say then that you're creating and using that word for just a generic, generic word for woman, you, by that you mean when you've already given two specific titles of an office or a position, you mean just with that generic word woman, you mean a, a third office? Do you understand? Episkopos is the word for overseer in verse 1 and 2. Diakonos is the word for deacon in verse 8 in the Greek. Gnikos is just the word for woman. It's not an office position. Secondly, however, though, the placement of verse 11 is very interesting in the list, is it not? It's almost problem, uh, problematic. 
it's sandwiched between the deacon qualifications. The deacon qualifications go from verse 8 to 10, and then down to verse 12 to 13, and it seems disjoint logically if Paul is introducing a new official office. If Paul meant deaconesses, it would have seemed more logical to introduce them at the end of verse 12 or 13. If Paul was not finished with his thoughts for the deacons, why did he inject another office category before finishing the one on the deacons? Now look, can Paul be disjointed in his mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Yes, he can. Okay, that is a possibility. However, if Paul means the wives of the deacons, what implication does that have on the positioning of it? Look at it. Look at it carefully. That fits in coherently with Paul's mention of the deacon being the husband of one wife in verse 12 and managers of their own children of their own households. Or, um, yeah, I mean, if he's moving into that in verse 12, it's very logical that he might just say, I want to say something about the, the women, your, your women, your wives. I think that's a much closer connection there than if he's creating a whole new office and sticking it in the middle and then having to break the deacon office into two chunks. Thirdly, historically, we do not find conclusive evidence for women deacons or deaconesses during New Testament times at all. That's in Alexander Strauch's book and on page 119 on deacons. The first positive identification of deaconesses is found in writings of Eastern churches of the Roman Empire dated at 230 A.D., okay, 230 years after um, Christ. The, the beginnings of a feminine diaconate are indeed hidden in shadow and darkness and difficult to perceive with any exactness, historically speaking, at the time of Christ. For instance, let me give you a time frame. Roughly 230 years ago, we, we became a nation. So that would be like saying something that exists now, we would try to import it back and say it was very possible that it existed when the signers were signing the Declaration of Independence. That's quite a bit of time. Okay? Is it possible that something present today might have been present back then, but just not recorded and written down and preserved? Sure. That was a long time ago. Okay? Fourthly, the majority of English translations go with wives. Okay, scholars who come up with translations, the majority of them went with wives. And this is one of those times where I just, I, the NAS, I just want to go, why did you do that? Um, but they did it. Um, it's wives rather than women or deaconesses. King James Version did that. NIV did that. ESV does it. New English Bible. New Translation. The Good News Bible. Today's English Version. Version. NASB 95, the update, is one of the only translations which translates women, allowing for the meaning of deaconesses. And I know why they do. They're, they're, it's actually, they're trying to be less interpretive. When you make a translation, you don't want to interpret everything about the word. You want to leave it with its word. It's just woman. That's what it means. And then you leave it to the reader to have to study and determine who's women, what women. And so they, they, they did it that way. So it's actually a good thing, but um, I just want it to match my position. So, <laughs> Number five, I'm just being honest with you. Wives of deacons avoids any potential conflict, number five, with Paul's earlier teaching on women in this letter, not being out in a position of authority over men in the church, 1 Timothy 2.12, since they would be under the ministry of their husbands. Um, the way the other side gets around this is, well, we only have women deacons in ministries where women have their, their realm of service in the body among other women, among children, and whatnot. And that would be satisfactory to me if they do that, if that's the view they took. And then lastly, number six, I just think it's more consistent yet that in an office, um, the wife is working under the umbrella leadership of her husband. Um, 
Does that mean that she can't teach and is not thoughtful about um, God's word and applying it to women and to children and whatnot? No, of course not. She, she can be able to teach in those settings. Number six, the early church in Acts 6. I think this is a very powerful argument. Decided to go with all men servants, prototype deacons, when it would have been easy to assign women to the care of the widows. If there was ever a perfect time to capitalize on the ministry strengths of women ministering to women from an official servant leadership role in the church, the apostles could have done that, maybe even should have done it, but they didn't. They picked seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. And I think that being a prototype office set the standard for what Paul would then write and conclude later. If you have any questions about this, oh, that means, um, one last sentence there. This means that in the deacon application process, which a husband goes through, his wife will also need to have her character evaluated as well because there are some qualifications given in verse 11 for her. Um, let's, let me just give them to you quickly. Uh, being, she must be dignified, that's the same one in verse 8. Not malicious gossips. That means um, slanderous accusations are not thrown at others. She does not throw slanderous accusations at other people. The word is diabolos. <laughs> Diablo. <laughs> the devil. The slanderer. She is not a slanderer like the devil is. Um, how important would this be for a wife? standing among troubled women who are feeling racial tension in the early church and seeing people respond maybe even sinfully and trying to help them, she can't be a slanderer. Okay? Why is that addressed to women is my question. Because of the same reason that um, being one woman men is addressed to us. The genders uniquely, I think, have their issues um, that are built into who they are. You and I need to be pure, and our wives need to be careful with their words. And so do we. But that's not to say that women don't have to be pure. We all do. But we have our unique tendencies, don't we? Temperate, verse 11. Um, avoiding whatever might cloud and prevent clear-headed thinking. The word to put in your blank is clear-headed. Avoiding whatever might cloud and prevent clear-headed thinking. This is the same word back in verse 2 for the elder. Sober-minded. Temperate. Uh, it means sober, alert, watchful. It includes the element of also being free from the clouded thinking that alcohol can bring. It, this word is sometimes used in that context, in that understanding, um, that there needs to be a temperateness, a sober-mindedness, and that means that there's nothing clouding the judgment of the woman. And faithful in all things. That means trustworthy in all matters entrusted to her, whether they're great or small. Trustworthy. The word faithful just means reliability, honesty, she's dependable. Um, those are at a premium in a woman who's going to be serving for the gospel's sake in the church and in ministry like that and in the world. And lastly, deacons, in verse 13, these are the blessed results of faithfulness. Deacons are highly respected, emboldened, emboldened, that's the word to put in your blank, emboldened servants in the mission. MacArthur has a quote. I'm going to skip over a bunch of this just so we can finish here. MacArthur says, Those who serve God well and see his power and grace operative in their lives will be emboldened for even greater service. And I can't help but think of Philip and Stephen, who in serving faithfully um, just bread 
to women who weren't getting it, to making sure they did that? Were they emboldened in doing that for greater ministry, for even greater things? Were they faithful in it? Uh, were they highly respected? I think Paul is saying, man, these were men of high standing. One man gave his life and suffered for the gospel ultimately. The other man was used by God to spread the gospel to the next phase and region of the church in the Samaria. And I think for a man who's a deacon over whatever kind of ministry, he has positioned himself for a place of high standing and to be even emboldened for greater ministry. Um, deacons are non-negotiable guys in a church. And we are out of time. And we did not do small groups. What I'd like for you to do is make sure you get your homework handed in. So you can just leave it on the table or you can go, no, go hand it to the guy who's your small group leader. And let me pray. Can I do that? Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the wonderful questions and the dialogue. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Two things. As we um, finish up, I'll just take one more minute of your time. One of the things that we want to give you to help you become more prayerful about the deacon qualifications in your life is we gave, um, what I did several years ago is I took each one of the qualifications, I divided them up over um, the seven days of the week, and I tried to put them in a, in a kind of a prayerful language so that you can take it and you can be, think devotionally before God and, the, and pray something like this. I'm not asking you to pray my words I put here. Okay? The point is, interact with God about dignity. Start praying about this qualification. Do that every Monday. It'll take you two seconds, two minutes to pray that part. On Tuesdays, work through being not, uh, not being double-tongued and whatnot. Just, but I don't care how you do it, but just become more prayerful. If this helps you do that, Great, if it doesn't, but it gives you other ideas, then it served its purpose, okay? On your homework, the green sheet that glows in the dark. <laughs> that will make you see funny things when you look away from it. What I want you to do is pick two deacon qualifications which you see evidences of God's grace and growth in your life, okay? Be specific and write less than no, uh, no less than one paragraph for each qualification. I want you to pick two of them that you believe God is doing a work in you, okay? Secondly, pick two deacon qualifications in which you do not see the growth you desire. Be specific and write no less than one paragraph for each. And then just set aside specific time for prayer concerning what you've written. Give thanks, praise to God for his work in you, and um, ask him for more strength and conviction to grow in character. Okay? And then begin to pray through that prayer guide. Any questions, guys? Thank you so much for your time, guys. Have a great Saturday. Thank you, sir, for your...